This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Trimedia syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, how did this all get started? How, do we, how did we end up where we are? You heard the clip of the initial uh, uh, together the, when they were sitting together and, and talking to the press. They were joking yep. about what uh, the progress was being made. Then all of a sudden it went off the rails. What happened here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know. I wasn't sitting there. But the only thing I can presume is that um, someone within the Liberal government uh, decided that the best way to close things out was obviously to issue that fluffy press release, which is, by the way, very common for most G7 or other major world conferences. You always have some sort of a communique that comes out which talks about the things they discussed, you know, their hopes and dreams of how certain negotiations will go in the future. Usually all the leaders sign it. There typically isn't a reason not to. And it just goes off. And generally speaking, a lot of the things that happened during that event which are just large photo ops for the most part, but important to have because you want world leaders to communicate with one another. Um, it, it just sort of goes into passing in history. And that's where it all really should have been. I have to admit I was pretty stunned that the liberals, whether it be Justin Trudeau or his senior advisors, and more likely the, the latter, decided that while Donald Trump was on a plane to go meet the North Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un, in Singapore, which is a major meeting which will have possibly, although we'll see, ramifications in terms of international security, international diplomacy, etc., to then basically reiterate his frustration about tariffs, which, by the way, we already knew that the Canadian Prime Minister was furious about because there are a lot of Americans and Canadians who are furious about this trade war and this whole battle of tariffs and then retaliation of tariffs that's going on currently. We get that. There was no need to do this. He could have actually issued that comment a few days later. In other words, let Trump and Kim have their meeting in Singapore. Whatever happens will happen. And he still could have done the same thing. And yes, there would have been agitation and irritation from the American side, quite understandably. But I think this really just set things up in such a way, or set things off in such a way, that now, as you probably noticed, and maybe you've talked about on your show, Scott, Donald Trump is now looking at the auto industry as another way where he could possibly launch into tariffs as well. This has really, unfortunately, perpetuated an already bad situation to, I would say, scorching hot levels that it really didn't need to go into. And look, no one's saying that Trump or Trudeau really has the advantage here. They both acted like children, especially for two people who are ideologically very different, seem to believe in certain principles of the free market and seem to kind of understand that less trade barriers is better than more trade barriers. And I think he's actually, unfortunately, Justin Trudeau just intensified things to the point that now it's going to be very hard to, in many ways, save the North American free trade trade agreement or NAFTA. And it's going to be very difficult to have this so-called trade war end anytime soon. It probably will, but it's going to take longer now. Uh, Donald, is Donald Trump alluding to the fact that what Justin Trudeau says to him face-to-face is different what he says when he, once he gets on a plane and is, is facing the press? Well, that seems to be what he's saying. I mean, again, we don't know what was said in the private bilateral. World leaders of all sorts always have bilaterals, which are meetings which are done away from the press. Now, sometimes, obviously, as we saw with Trump and Trudeau, they'll invite the press in for a few, you know, few snapshots 
They'll make a few comments. We heard Trump make a joke about tariffs. Ha, 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 everybody laughs, and then everyone goes away, and then we don't exactly know what happens in private. Meetings can be good, they can be pleasant, they can be uncomfortable. It just depends on the personalities who are there. But yes, I think Donald Trump is insinuating that Justin Trudeau in private handles things very differently than he does in public. Although, in fairness, I think Donald Trump does the same thing. And also, in fairness, I think most world leaders do. You know, you have to have a certain visage as a public official when you come out and you represent that to the nth degree. Much the same way, if you want to use an example, but not to go wildly off script, when you saw Donald Trump board the plane to go to the G7 conference, he talked about the fact that there's a 290% tear, you know, taxes that are included because of supply management. He's killing the dairy industry in the United States. I, you know, the Canadians shouldn't be doing this. They should be getting rid of it. But then when he lands in Quebec for the G7 conference and looks at the, you know, the, the beautiful scenery and meets the world leaders, waves, shakes hands with Justin Trudeau, and seems to be having a, you know, a relatively pleasant time of it overall, that's also very different, too. So, yeah, Justin Trudeau definitely was two-faced, I would imagine. I, I think the U.S. president is probably accurate about that. But then again, the U.S. president seems to do that a lot himself. So pretty strong language here, Michael. Uh, meek and mild, yep. uh, you know, even special place in hell, the, the aid. I mean, my goodness, yep. uh, what's going on here? Now, the aide, Navarro, who said that, who is the trade representative, now, I don't know if that, those are the words of Donald Trump. He claims he was speaking for the White House, and obviously the man who actually runs the White House, that being Donald Trump. Did Trump use that language or use those languages? I, I don't really know. It's hard to say. Much the same way that when Larry Kudlow, who obviously has a very important role in the White House under Donald Trump and is basically his senior economic advisor, when Kudlow came out and basically said that Justin Trudeau's actions were sort of borderline traitorous, I mean, again, are those words that Donald Trump would use? Or are those words that Larry Kudlow, who is very media savvy, would use just simply to kind of get the message out there? We don't know what Navarro, Kudlow, and others have actually heard or been told to say but I agree with you overall that the language coming out of the White House is really, really fierce, much more fierce and much angrier than anything we've ever seen in the historical, historical relationship between the U.S. and Canada, which, yes, has had many disagreements, but has been handled in a very friendly manner. You know, the U.S. To Canada, for Canada is our closest ally trading partner and has always been a close confidant in military events as well, from world wars to other skirmishes. This is a country that we rely on. This is a country that we need. This is a country that we are not going to win a trade war against. Stop fooling yourselves, and I hope most of your listeners don't, but there are Canadians out there who actually seem to think that Canada can push around the U.S. this way. We are a middle, we are a middle power. Being a middle power, we have a good economy. We don't have a world-beating economy, which means that the U.S. really doesn't need us as much as we need them. Plus, it also should be mentioned briefly that Canada's export market is heavily towards the United States. Seventy-five percent of our total exports go to the U.S. Do you think that if everything just ended, say, tomorrow, which I don't think will happen, it's just a hypothetical scenario, if it all ended tomorrow that Donald Trump woke up 
after his meeting with Kim Jong-un, decided to hell with the Canadians. I've had enough. We're doing away with it. You know, let them start, a, start from scratch with a new trade relationship with us. If that happened, do you think we could easily replace that export market? The U.S. could easily do it. They would just go to other countries and increase their supply and demand with them. It would be very simple. Canada would be left in the cold, and that would affect our businesses. It would so, affect our politics and affect our people. With uh, the U.S. being as big as it is and Canada being as small as it is uh, from, an, from an economic standpoint, why does Donald Trump care so much that our dairy is subsidized so much? Are they losing that much to the small Canadian farmer? The fact is that supply management is a protectionist policy. Yeah. And although, yes, it is fair to say that Donald Trump in his two years, roughly, as president, has been what we would call an economic nationalist, which means that a protectionist policy like supply management should actually appeal to him. The reality is that most people look at supply management as a detriment to the free market, and more specifically for Donald Trump, based on this year's midterm elections and his 2020 presidential rebid, He's looking at it as, as a means sure. of the fact that it's been hurting U.S. states like Wisconsin, which was key in the Rust Belt to helping him be, get elected in the right. first place in 2016. So I think a lot of it has to do with political strategy, because Wisconsin's dairy industry is huge, it's important, it's vote-rich, it's viable to the U.S. as part of the economic machine. And if it keeps getting hammered by Canada's supply management principle, which makes it impossible for others to compete and gives the Canadian dairy farmers an enormous advantage that, quite frankly, anyone who believes in the free market should not support to begin with, and that also includes, with all due respect, federal Tory leader Andrew Scheer, I, you know, we know the reasons why he's doing that, but on the other hand, it's just very unconservative of him to mm. sort of stand that way. I can understand why Donald Trump would be frustrated, maybe from a personal point of view, but definitely from a political one. And so what was it that Justin Trudeau said that set Donald Trump off? What was it specifically in that communique or what he said to the press that set him off, do you think? I don't think it was the communique. Look, again, I wasn't a fly, I'm not flying the wall. I wasn't there. But I don't think the communique had anything to do with it. The communique, quite frankly, Scott, was innocuous. It was not important. As I said, it's just a way to sort of close up a G7 conference and you end on a high note. Everyone signs, you know, puts their pen to paper. Everyone's happy for a while, and then we all forget about so it. So what because was the trigger? The trigger, you know, it, the trigger may be that... As a, as a guess, and this is purely a guess on my part, because I've not spoken to anybody on the f Canadian side or American side as to what happened, and they wouldn't tell me anyways, you know, bilaterals are private affairs. My guess is that probably something between the two men triggered them, not in terms of a yelling match or a screaming match, maybe was simply the frustration, uh, to use Trudeau as an example, that he felt that he, yeah, maybe made a little bit of headway with Donald Trump, but after having dealt with him for a while, maybe he just feels that, you know, it's fine for him to say this now with all the, you know, the beautiful scenery behind us. But is he going to say anything or is he going to just act differently the moment he touches down either in Singapore or when he gets back home to the United States? As for Donald Trump, I think his reaction was very simple. He couldn't care less about the communique. <laughs> Probably didn't even care that he signed it. I think what bothered him is that he probably felt that, look, 
I've left things with, you know, Justin Trudeau where they're at. You know, we're going to try to work hard and we'll build it and we'll see what happens. You know, knowing full well behind the scenes between you, I, and the listeners, we have no idea what's going to happen. And then he hears or, or, you know, catches word that Trudeau has done this while he's in the air flying to Singapore for one of the more important meetings in world history in recent years, it probably just set him off. He was probably furious, thinking, who, you know, what does Canada think or what right does Canada have to start blasting back at us when they've already told us how irritated we are? Mm. We uh, know that the two countries are irritated each other. Why did Justin Trudeau have to put an extra layer on the, mm. shall we say, political cake while he's in the air for something that important? And I think that's what may have done it. What about the picture where, you, of course, you see uh, the leaders standing around, leaning over a table, Donald Trump sitting down uh, with his arms folded? Yeah, well, you know, if you look around, actually, people also posted another picture that was taken seconds afterwards where you see everyone smiling, including Donald Trump, Angela Merkel, <laughs> everyone around them. And, gee, you know, and, and here's the funny thing, Scott, and I think all the listeners are going to really have a good laugh over this. Virtually no one used that second photo. Oh, but Donald Trump yeah. staying there defiant as everyone, you know, yeah. angrily looks at him. Yeah. Again, you know, it, it goes back to various, you know, the Rorcas test and various other things that we look at in life, which is that people want to interpret things in a particular fashion, and they believe that the G7 leaders, or at least let's say the six leaders opposing Donald Trump, that being the seventh leader, are all furious at him. Of course they're angry behind the scenes. We all know that. As Trump is angry with them, they're angry with him. But on the other hand, there are always going to be moments where, yes, there'll be some stern language that's said, but there's more, you know, jovi- there's more of a jovial nature right. to these conferences than I think a lot of people are led to believe. So the photo they saw looked like the world against Trump, and Trump just defiantly staying there saying, you know, don't bother me, you're just, you know, you're little insects, I can remove you at, the, you know, at a heartbeat, versus a second photo, which shows them all, you know, laughing, being pleasant, and exactly what you would expect at a G7 mm. conference or elsewhere. Uh, uh, just a few seconds left, does this have anything to do with uh, the North Korean summit and Trudeau, or sorry, Trump trying to show strength heading into that? Some people have said that. Is there any truth to that, do you think? Uh, based on the first photo? No, based on the fact that he's uh, having this war with Trudeau, it's to try to make oh. him look stronger as he heads into the meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, I understand what you're saying. Um, uh, maybe. Uh, I, I know what it, you played the little clip from ABC News that it, it's sort of hard to believe that we're having a bigger fight with the Canadian prime minister than we are the North Korean dictator. And yeah. yes, there certainly is something to that. But yes, I, I think that Donald Trump, again, and we've discussed this many times in the past, Everything is sort of a game to him, the way it's played. That politics is sort of done in a step-by-step methodology where image means everything. So words, comments, tweets, facial gestures, body language, etc., all either works to his advantage or disadvantage sometimes, depending on how the interpretation is done. In this case, yes, I think what he's trying to say here is, look, you know, Canada, yes, is an ally, a friend, etc., but they're not big and powerful that they can basically try to push the United States around. So I don't care, and I'm just going to blast away at Justin Trudeau, as he's been doing on tweets. In terms of North Korea, well, he's heading into a meeting right now, so to say anything to set it off could lead, you know, this meeting was already canceled once. It could have been easily canceled the second time while he was in the air had he done anything. But I think it was certainly to show that the U.S. is a powerful country, 
to show that Donald Trump, in his view, is a powerful leader, and he is not going to be bullied around by little tiny Canada on this issue when there are bigger fish to fry on the international scene. So, yeah, I think that is definitely part of it. Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times. As always, Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Inez Delacatera, Washington correspondent, Global News. We are talking about uh, what could be the biggest test for U.S. President Donald Trump as he meets with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Inez, thank you very much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So, uh, how are world leaders viewing this? What are world leaders, what are their expectations here as they watch this go down? Yeah, I think the big thing here uh, is to expect the unexpected. These two leaders, both Kim and Trump, are so unpredictable that even though they've both said that they want denuclearization, you can't really be sure what's going to happen. I think that the main thing to watch is is also, uh, as I mentioned, they, you know, they, they've both said they want a denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, but they also have different un- understandings of just what that may mean. Uh, so the big question is whether they'll actually be able to reach an agreement there or whether this will just end up being a photo op. They both seem to like these photo ops. We know Trump mentioned, you know, when uh, when, the, when Kim met with the South Korean president that he, uh, we, there were reports that he wanted a similar kind of photo op at the DMZ. He kind of likes these these um, kind of displays. Uh, so is this going to be a, a photo op or are they actually going to be able to accomplish anything? We'll have to wait and see. Since there has never been a photo op like this, is that the big deal here? Is that what it's all about in Trump's mind? What's a win for for Trump here. That photo? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's, you know, what we're, what we're watching. I think you could certainly argue that just that photo is certainly a win for Kim. 100% definitely. Kim has been so isolated for so long, and he now has a sit-down with the U.S. president. That's huge. No U.S. president before uh, wanted to meet with Kim until he kind of made concessions uh, because you're, you're kind of just making a concession in agreeing to meet with him. So the fact that Kim got this meeting with Trump is a win uh, in itself for Kim. Uh, for Trump, it all also shows that yes, he might be on his way to uh, solving one of the biggest, uh, you know, diplomatic issues uh, of our time. Uh, something that hasn't been resolved in 50 years. There was talk that he might win a, uh, you know, a peace prize for for doing this. Hmm. Um, so he certainly likes the optics of this. But at the same time, if he walks away empty-handed, uh, that's not so great for him either. Well, as you mentioned, and as this is a success for Kim Jong Un either way, because when he's requested these meetings in the past. Uh, Uh, world leaders turn him down. So we already know this is a huge win for Kim Jong-un. How does Donald Trump avoid being being played the fool here? At what time does Donald Trump realize that's all Kim Jong-un wants? Yeah, we'll have to see if he if he realizes that. Trump has said that, you know, it's it's been so interesting going into this. Trump said that he's confident that things will go well, but at the same time, he said that he's willing to walk out if things aren't going his way. Uh, he said that he would know uh, within a minute of sitting down with Kim if things were going to be okay. Um, so so we'll have to see. But but the fact we also just found out that Trump uh, was kind of cutting his trip short and, and leaving immediately as soon as the summit was over. So, um, you know, and at the same time, then Trump has 
was also hinted that there would be other, uh, there might be other meetings with Kim, which could indicate that this will be kind of a long, drawn-out process, um, and that it might be a while before the world sees any tangible results. Uh, obviously, I'm sure you would. You, you heard what happened over here at the G7 with uh, what started as a friendly meeting between Trump and Trudeau, and then all of a sudden, as Trump's flying on Air Force One, the tweets start flying, and the next thing you know, he's calling the Prime Minister meek and mild, and and uh, and not trustworthy and such. Uh, is there any validity to the to the theory that he's doing this so he appears strong to Kim Jong Un? I mean, does that even resonate with someone like a Kim Jong Un? Yeah, it's really fascinating. But you had, a, like you said, Larry Kudlow, the top uh, White House economic advisor, saying over the weekend that the reason Trump was picking a fight with uh, Justin Trudeau, one of uh, you know the U.S.'s closest and oldest allies, was because he needed to show toughness going into this this meeting with Kim Jong Un. He couldn't afford to appear weak. Um, uh, but you know, I don't. Uh, critics are watching this and and, and saying that. Uh, if Trump is trying to show toughness here, that's not necessarily what he's uh, accomplishing, that really the message he's sending is that he is someone who's erratic and thin-skinned uh, and someone who's willing to go after one of his closest and oldest allies, that someone who says something, you know, who has these meetings uh, at a summit, who says he's going to sign the communique, and then on Twitter completely changes his mind. Uh, that's not necessarily the message you want to be sending to Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un likely watching all of this and saying, I don't know if I can trust the U.S. president. Well, again, how can he not, I mean, Kim Jong-un interpret this, uh, I mean, if this is how we treat allies, I'm an enemy, how am I going to trust anything that he's, he's saying to me? Absolutely, and that's the big problem, and that's what's so fascinating about all of this is the U.S. president willing to go after his allies, um, and then cozying up to his enemies, uh, you know, North Korea, and then also with what happened with Russia, you know, saying that Russia should be readmitted into the to the G7. Um, but certainly, Kim Jong Un watching all of this, other nations watching all of this, and 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 just um, you know, feeling that they can't trust Trump, um, and that that's a big issue when it comes to diplomatic relations. Can can these people be trusted? Do you think that this meeting will be all for naught? And by that, after it's all over, uh, President Trump will fly home and say everything that all the other world leaders have been saying forever. And just he's the one to finally realize that, hey, there's not much we can really do here. This guy's a dictator. I think they're going to try and, and definitely uh, push it as a win. Already you had Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, this morning tweeting that just the very fact that uh, Kim and Trump were sitting down was a win for the world. Of course, many saying, you know, he's kind of claiming a, an early victory here. Uh, Pompeo also saying that talks were moving along faster than expected. So I thought that was very interested, interesting because usually when you go into these meetings, you want to kind of lower expectations. And what Pompeo here is doing by saying that uh, talks are moving faster than expected, he's really uh, raising the bar. Um, so there, I, there must be something going on they might you know have something they're going to announce something that that's in the works i doubt that it'll be anything you know huge i really think the denuclearization if it's going to happen is going to be a long drawn out process uh, but you can bet that both leaders are going to go home and, and claim victory for sure as you mentioned i mean both leaders have an entirely different definition of what some of these agreements are whether it's denuclearization or what i mean how, how do they come to terms on the terms alone let alone get past this meeting Right, yeah, so that's a, a really good question. Uh, I mean, North Korea, you know, has pointed in the past uh, that they, they've indicated that part of denuclearization for them is also the U.S. getting rid of its uh, nuclear shields in South Korea, which the U.S., you know, has said is completely off the table. Uh, North Korea may also ask uh, North uh, the U.S. To, to withdraw some of some of its troops from uh, South Korea. Again, the U.S. has said that would be off the table at this summit, but those may be some of North Korea's uh, requirements. And the U.S., on the other hand, uh, 
had uh, uh, indicated that they wanted denuclearization to kind of happen immediately in one shot, that denuclearization is simple. You just get rid of your nuclear weapons. You uh, have outside observers come in to verify that that's actually happening. Uh, but Kim Jong-un has indicated that for him, it would be kind of a long, drawn-out process. It's not in their in, in their interest, in North Korea's interest, to get rid of all of, all of their nuclear weapons in one go. Um, so, yeah, very different definitions of what it means. Uh, and then I think the other thing to watch uh, is whether, you know, it, the, the, whatever they agree upon will be verifiable. North Korea has made promises in the past they would get rid of their nuclear weapons or destroy other nuclear testing sites, uh, and then that didn't turn out to be true. We found out later on that, that, that you know it was all propaganda. We just saw recently they brought in foreign reporters to observe the demolition of a nuclear testing site, and right. then there were reports that that testing site was actually operational. So that whether whether whatever they agree to uh, today, tonight, uh, is verifiable uh, is going to be a big, big issue as well. Do we we have any idea of the logistics or what's going to go on? How long will this meeting be? Who will be there? What do, do we know any of that yet? Yeah, well, we know the um, they, they're not. They won't be just a one-on-one, -on -one, right? They're going to have also delegations. Uh, the, the U.S. and North Korean delegations have been in, in talks for for a while now. It's you know been they've been in talks for a long time. We had Pompeo already meeting with Kim and, and North Koreans a, a couple times before the summit. Um, but at this summit, there will be uh, kind of other members of the Trump administration of the North Korean governments. They're also uh, engaging in negotiations behind closed doors. Um, but I think what, what is interesting, I think that the biggest kind of uh, uh, detail here and as far as logistics is that the president is planning to leave earlier than expected and that he will be heading straight back to Washington after just a day's uh, the, the, the meeting of the day. Why would that be happening Inez? Why would he all of a sudden, I mean this is not like a you know a, a quick hop and a uh, jump and a skip here. This is a big trip. Why would he already be saying he's going to cut it early? Why would he not have the opportunity to, as he said, he just wants to sit down and socialize this guy and get in his head. So why is he already, and, and, and wouldn't Kim Jong-un take offense to that? Right, yeah, and, and critics are, are looking at that, and they're absolutely saying that Kim Jong-un could possibly take offense at the fact that Trump doesn't, you know, plan to stay later and, and, and engage in more meetings, that it's just this one meeting and then he's flying home. Um, and, and critics, you know, saying that this could be an indication that this will really just be a photo op. It will be Trump shaking Kim Jong-un's hand, which, no question about it, will be a historic moment. It, it is huge. We can't underscore how big it is. No U.S. president uh, has ever, you know, sat down with a North Korean leader, um, but if it's just the photo op, that's also not not why Trump is there, right? He's, he's supposed to walk out of that uh, with a deal. The, the, the you know man who wrote the art of the deal should be coming out of this meeting with some tangible results. Um, and the fact that he's just kind of in and out of this meeting doesn't seem to bode so well for that. And as are we just assuming or guessing that this is going to go well? What if, like the G7, it starts off cordial enough and then ends up going off the rails because of uh, an erratic tweet of some sort? What, what happens if this does go south? No pun intended. Yeah, and that's what's so concerning. Oh, no, absolutely. As we, we saw happening at the G7 was so remarkable and so outrageous in so many ways. The fact that, you know, these are our closest allies and, and that Trump would just kind of then turn around and send off this awful tweet and claim that Justin Trudeau betrayed him and stabbed him in the back. Uh, if Trump is capable of doing that with his allies, uh, you know, there, there's no telling what he's capable of doing with somebody that he, you know, has no relationship with. Um, so, so we'll see what happens. But, you know, it's 
it certainly is, I think, something that's on everybody's mind. If, if you know, what happened at the G7, could that uh, happen again here? Uh, we'll have to see. How are Americans, uh, and I'll ask you this about the G7 too, but first with, with North Korea, how are Americans viewing Donald Trump's trip there and what is going on? Is this on the radar? How are they reacting to this? Trip to Singapore, you mean? Yes. Yes, I think, well, you know, it depends who you ask, but I think uh, Trump's supporters will be quick to say, you know, like uh, that he's uh, doing something historic, that this is such a win for him, uh, that no U.S. president has ever been able to, to do this. It certainly is a, uh, you know, such a kind of stunt that is such a big deal. And then the visuals of Kim and Trump touring Singapore is, um, I'm sure his supporters are reacting in a way that's that's positive and that they feel that this, uh, their, their, their guy is really getting stuff done um, and I think Democrats of course you know is are, are a little more skeptical and waiting to see uh, what comes out of it you know how this goes there is a chance this could also just um, set us back if, if their meeting doesn't go well if Trump tweets well you know he's tweeted at Kim before called him little rocket man and a dotard um, so could the meeting you know not go so well and then Trump tweets something similar again uh, afterwards on his way back to Washington that could also set us back so uh, lots of skeptics here for sure uh, getting into uh, the G7 obviously Trump and Trudeau fighting about tariffs how are how is that playing in America and will are, is, is there any concerns that this may hurt Americans more hurt more Americans than it will help yeah, so I think uh, when it comes to the G7, I, a lot of the uh, kind of analysis here was that maybe Trump was was playing to his base, right? A lot of people couldn't figure out what was Trump's strategy here. Was there even a strategy? But maybe that Trump was just trying to play to his base and show, you know, look, that I'm fighting for the American people. I'm putting America first. I'm fighting for the American workers because those are the headlines, right? You'll uh, log on to Twitter online and the headlines will be, you know, Trump uh, tweets this insult at, at the Canadian prime minister because he feels that Canada is taking advantage of the U.S. So Trump supporters will walk away feeling like, oh, okay, my, my president is fighting for me. So of course, you know, there's a lot more to it um, than that. But but certainly, uh, I think it, it did create a, a, a lot of buzz here, what happened with Trudeau. You know, you had a, a White House economic advisor, Peter Navarro, saying that there's a special place in hell for people who, yeah. you know, uh, stabbed Trump in the back. It certainly were very harsh words and, and, and unexpected. Um, I mean, we knew that there was this kind of back and forth over terror. But again, Canada is one of the U.S.'s closest and oldest allies, and it's just really remarkable that the president would uh, go after Canada in that way and then go after uh, Justin Trudeau on a personal level. It seemed like the two were, were getting along, and I think Justin Trudeau put a lot of effort into maintaining a, a good relationship with the U.S. president, as did French President Emmanuel Macron, but unfortunately that doesn't seem to have paid mm. off for either of them, really. All right, getting back to Singapore, one last question, and as we've seen the impersonators and such, what do you think the chances are that we're going to see see a picture of Trump and Kim Jong-un together with a couple of those impersonators. Will we see that? Oh, man, I wish that those impersonators are hilarious. Just that makes me wish I was there. Yeah, I, I hope so. I certainly hope so. All right. Inez de la Quetera, Washington correspondent, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on this. Inez, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Last week, of course, the provincial election in Ontario, the Green Party of Ontario, nabbed its very first seat in the legislature to talk more about all of this. Leader of the Green Party and incumbent MPP for Guelph, Mike Schreiner, is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. First of all, congratulations. 
Well, thank you. It was a very historic night for Guelph and uh, certainly for the Green Party. And I'm looking forward to the kind of change we can bring to Queen's Park. So how do you think, why do you think it worked this time, Mike? How come uh, it resonated with people in Guelph? Well, I think, you know, the Green Party's values, our policies, our vision really resonates with Guelph. Guelph has been a leader in many of the issues that I care deeply about, everything from community energy to waste reduction and recycling to um, uh, food innovation. Uh, we have over 8,000 small businesses here in Guelph. Uh, Guelph's done a lot of great work on, on protecting water. So um, Guelph is just a real leader, and the Green Party's values, I think, resonate in Guelph. I also think I've started two local food businesses here in Guelph. Uh, I've been a strong champion for Guelph. I've worked hard in the community, been on a number of, you know, boards and volunteer positions and things like that. So I think just that sort of leadership role in the community. And I think finally, just the fact that this was a change election and people really wanted change and the kind of change that we were talking about, um, mostly being honest with people about what we want to do, how we want to do it, how we want to pay for it. And then just being positive, not engaging in the adversarial, tear the other party down kind of politics, uh, I think really resonated in Guelph. Um, what You talked about this being a vote of change. What about those that may say for the Green this was a protest vote? It was anybody but the establishment and sure, let's try Green. How much of this do you think is a protest vote? Well, you know, Scott, I think if it had been a closer election, you would say, oh yeah, this was a protest vote. But you know, the fact that I received 45% of the vote, which is the highest vote total anyone's received in Guelph in, I think, over 40 years, uh, I think really says that our, our message connected with people, our campaign connected with people. And one of the things that made me really proud was, you know, a lot of political pundits have said, oh, you know, it'd be tough for Mike Schreiner to get elected because he's too nice and he's too honest. And, you know, we don't elect nice, honest people. And I think what this campaign showed was that um, you can run a positive campaign. You can run a campaign about ideas, about, you know, how to make, you know, life in your community and in your province better. Uh, and you can be honest about how you're going to do it and how you're going to pay for it. And voters will respond positively to that. And so for me, I hope that sends a signal to our political culture in general that people want a new way of doing politics, and that's exactly uh, what I intend to do at Queen's Park. So what message, Mike, or, 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 or what policy, what is it that you said, other than change, what do you think in your platform resonated and related to Guelph voters? Well, I think part of it is our, our um, issue around jobs and supporting the clean economy. Uh, Guelph is a leader in clean innovation, clean economy, uh, food tech innovation. And so just embracing the new economy, uh, the fact that, you know, I sort of say there's two parties of big business, one party of no business at Queen's Park. And with the election of the first Green MPP, we actually now have a party of small business. And Guelph just has so many vibrant small businesses that really make, you know, this a great community. I think the fact that I had a fiscally responsible plan of how we could afford to invest in good social programs so how we could improve education and health care, housing affordability, social services, our, our plan around expanding mental health care, but having a fiscal plan to pay for it, I think really resonated with voters left, right, and center in Guelph because we attracted conservative 
liberal NDP and inspired people who hadn't voted before. And then finally, uh, issues around like protecting farmland and water are huge issues here in Guelph. And so I think I've been seen as a leader on those issues. And so that's why we attracted people from across the political spectrum. And we inspired uh, a number of new people to come out and vote. We had one of the highest voter turnouts you know, across the province. And my favorite story around that was I had a gentleman come up to me on election day and say, you know, I'm 78 years, or sorry, 68 years old. I've never voted before. And your campaign inspired me to vote. Um, you talked about uh, uh, fiscal matters and, and, and costing all of this out. Uh, whenever we hear uh, of, of programs like this, it, 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 we assume it means higher taxes, uh, more of what we had with Wynn and, and, and a government that continually seems to move farther and farther to the left, uh, more socialist. How how were or would you pay for all of this stuff? What uh, you know, we heard Andrea Horvath say that she was going to tax more people. H- how do you how do you make this work? And are we assuming that green parties are all left? Well, you know, I think we, like I said, we attracted people from across the political spectrum. We attracted people on the left, the right, people who had never voted before. And so, I think we're a party that just makes our decisions based on evidence and what works for people. And to give you a you know, concrete example of that from a fiscal perspective is, you know, we, we had the honesty to say to voters that the unfair hydro plan, which pretty much, you know, all the other three parties support, is just fiscally irresponsible to take 25% off of people's electricity bills at a price tag, according to the Financial Accountability Officer, of, you know, somewhere between 40 and $90 billion over the next two decades to give you, you know, a false discount right before the election. And we know bills are going to skyrocket again starting in a couple of years. And so I think to have the courage to say, you know what, that's money that could be better spent on health care and education, mental health services, deficit reduction, I think resonated with people. Just the fact that I had the courage to be honest with them, but also talking about things like uh, raising um, resource royalty rates. So Ontario has one of the lowest public return on natural mineral wealth and you know we just said hey if we can get that up to a level of let's say where saskatchewan is at that raises an extra billion dollars a year so why are we giving away our natural resources when that public wealth could be spent on good public programs in a fiscally responsible way so i think it was having having the courage to talk about how we can save money and how we can raise money uh, really resonated here in guelph uh, Canadians obviously want to save the planet. It seems all parties have adopted, you know, some sort of, of green stance. Uh, is Has the green movement been sort of muscled out of all of this? I mean, because it seems that all parties are, are adopting some sort of green policy. What's different about your party to the others when it comes to this message? Well, I think the green message is resonating and sort of the need to protect the people in places we love is connecting with voters across the country. I mean, I think that's why you're seeing green parties elected, you know, around the world and across Canada. You know, British Columbia has three green MLAs holding the balance of power in a minority government. PEI now has uh, two green MLAs and are pulling neck and neck for first place with the Liberals, really in a position there where they could you know, likely form official opposition or even form government. And I think you're going to see the New Brunswick Greens increase from one to more seats in their election this fall. 
and then of course now a historic breakthrough in Ontario. And so I think that is just showing people's hunger that you know Greens can get elected. We can do politics differently. Can we, we can, can we afford Greens when we can't when some are saying we can't afford the Liberals, we can't afford uh, the NDP. Um, you know, we we've just been through several years of a government that has exploited uh, the people's um, uh, sensitivity to green to to get money out of them to overpay for things. You mentioned the fi- financial accountability officer and in the auditor general. We've overpaid for all of these things. When people see green, they think loss of jobs. They think of you know the green party that's propping up an NDP government and stopping a pipeline from from getting built. How, how, how do you deal with that in, in the sense that people think that you're just going to cost us more money? Well, I think, Scott, you might think that, but I don't think people think that because, you know, as an example. The majority of Canadians um, want that pipeline built. Well, well you know, that's, that's, a, that's a national issue, not a provincial issue, but I can tell you right now. But it's two provincial, it's two provincial uh, uh, candidates, or three provincial candidates within, you know, two different NDP parties fighting each over, fighting each other over this. So you know, at the end of the day, the country is sort of being held hostage. Is that a positive? You know, I mean, again, everyone wants to save the planet, but how do you convince everybody that the Green Party just isn't another extremist party? Well, Scott. Well, first of all, two hundred and seventy-five thousand Canadians work in the clean energy sector. That's more people than work in the oil and gas sector. The largest job growth um, in the world right now is in the clean economy, um, a $6 trillion global economic opportunity if Ontario even captures... Those are all great numbers, and, we, and we've heard them all, but well, again, yeah, this doesn't... Hang on a sec. This doesn't happen overnight. So how do you make that transition without stopping pipelines and, and bringing the economy to a halt? Well, Scott, already in Canada right now, today, not in the future, but literally right now, at this very moment, more people in Canada work in the clean energy sector than work in the oil sand. So if you want to talk about where the job growth is, it's happening right now in the clean economy. My, my home riding of Guelph, the largest solar manufacturer in Canada, largest geothermal distributor in Canada. We have five green building companies that are building houses that help people save money by saving energy. We, we're the party, we're the movement that's talking about how we can create jobs and put people and planet first, put money in people's pockets. And actually, if we start getting off oil and gas, it's actually much cheaper to drive an electric vehicle, for example. It's way more cheaper to take public transit than to pay for a car. It's way more cheaper to heat a well-insulated home than an uninsulated home. So we're actually putting forward policies that not only create jobs, but help people save money by using energy more efficiently. I think that's a win for our economy. It's a win for your pocketbook, and it's a win for people. I don't think anybody disagrees with that, but I I think it's about the extreme and the speed in which uh, some, I guess, want to get that. You talked about all of these jobs, and I remember asking the energy minister about this and the premier about how many jobs that this industry had actually created. And they would always point to the Siemens plant, which has now gone out of business. So, uh, again, would there be all of this growth that you're talking about if there wasn't the millions in subsidies 
that are being passed to these people and then passed on to you in forms of higher electricity bills. Again, I, you know, I don't think this is an argument for or against green energy. I think every Canadian wants to, wants to uh, help preserve the planet and grow these industries. It's just the method in which to get there. And again, you know, in regard to the pipeline, yes, I believe we're moving all towards that. But that's still a couple of decades away. And really, when we've just come off of a win government that has literally sucked the province and the taxpayers dry, how do you convince people to vote for your party for more of that? Well, first of all, you can't blame renewable energy technology for the liberal government's mismanagement of the energy sector. And so I was the very first Ontario political party leader to criticize the liberal Samsung deal as an example back in 2010. I came out very critical of the way in which they were implementing the Green Energy Act because they were putting corporate interests ahead of community interests. So if Ontario had followed international best practices like in Denmark where they require 20% local uh, local ownership of renewable energy projects, or in Germany where almost 50% of their renewable energy projects are owned by local German citizens, then you start rolling out green energy in a way that um, creates local jobs, provides local economic benefits, has more local decision-making, and has local ownership. Um, And also on energy prices, by the way, we just need to start having an honest conversation about them as well. So if you look at the global adjustment, that's that's the part of your electricity bill that's been going up so much. 46% of the increase is due to contracts for nuclear power. 26% is due to contracts for natural gas. And about 17% is due to renewable energy, most of that actually being the Big Becky project to expand Niagara Falls, not wind and solar. So, yes, the Liberals did overpay for some wind and solar, but they overpaid for a number of other things as well. So you can't blame the technology on the mismanagement of the Liberal government. Uh, I guess the big job here is how do you convince voters that you will do it any differently and won't take more money out of voters' pockets? Well, you know, I think in Guelph, where voters had an opportunity to um, hear me deliver our plan, um, they overwhelmingly voted for the Green Party. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that we were not included in the leaders' debates, so we didn't have the opportunity to share our vision uh, as well with the rest of the province. But as we head into the next election, um, we'll certainly, I think, have that opportunity. But I think my job right now is to go to Queen's Park, I've already said to, um, you know, Premier-elect Ford, as well as the two opposition leaders, NDP and Liberals, and said, you know, hey, let's do politics differently. Let's figure out ways that we can work together across party lines to put forward legislation that puts the people of Ontario first, that helps us create jobs, that invests in better public services and protects the people and places we love in Ontario. And I think by taking that new approach to politics, which elected Greens across the country are doing, which is why voters in other provinces are now voting for more Greens, um, I think that's a winning that's a winning formula. And so, you know what, that's what I'm going to put into action to be a champion for Guelph, a champion for change at Queen's Park. And uh, we'll see over the next four years how um, that resonates with the people of Ontario. Can you have a Green Party with fiscal conservatism, or is it just more left? Well, I mean, first of all, if you um, read Lori Goldstein's column in the Toronto Sun during the election, he was basically 
said, I'm the only person with an honest plan about how to uh, price pollution in a way that is fiscally responsible. Um, if you look at the Toronto Star, was I was a leader who was most forthright in talking about, you know, putting forward a plan, saying this is what we want to do, how we want to do it, and how we're going to pay for it. I mean, the Conservatives spent the campaign talking about cutting taxes and not telling you how to pay for things. And the Liberals and the NDP talked about um, increasing spending without telling you how they're going to pay for it. And we actually put forward a plan that said, here's where we can save money, here's where we can raise money, and here's how we can get the province's uh, books balanced. And I think that I think our plan was the most fiscally responsible. Uh, so do you agree with the, tw- uh, with the twinning of the Kinder Morgan pipeline? Well, I actually think what should happen is um, we should have refining capacity in Alberta, and that way you're only shipping uh, refined crude through pipelines instead of diluted bitumen because diluted bitumen is a corrosive material that um, is not a matter of when those pipelines are going to spill, or, or if it's a matter of when they're going to spill, and you can't clean that spilling up. And why would we ship all those jobs outside of Canada? Um, so I would much rather see us refining um, that in Alberta and and shipping it then by pipeline in a more safe way. Why Being don't that, we? Why don't we have more refining capacity? Because instead we've been shutting them all down, and everybody's been saying for environmental reasons. Well, so actually, it seems odd. It seems odd that you know we want to ship our. Our, our dirty stuff somewhere else to have it refined only to bring it back in and then consume it. So why why have we been spending the last 20 years giving up refinery capacity in this province then? Well, you'll have to talk to the Liberals and Conservatives who've been in power about that, but all I know is... Elizabeth well, they'll blame it... On, well, everybody will blame it on, you know, even if I've talked to, to like Dan McTagg from GasBuddy.com, they'll say because the restrictions are so heavy that we can't, we can't encourage anybody to refine it here. Nobody wants to... Nobody's building refineries. They've been all closing down over the last 20 years. Well, I can tell you that Elizabeth May, along with um, the head of Uniform, Jay Diaz, have both been saying that let's stop shipping diluted bitumen uh, out of the country and we should be refining it here um, because that's how we capture more value and create more jobs. Everybody and says that, but it's not happening, and it's it's environmentalists that are stopping, we understand, from these refineries from being built. Well, I think the environmentalists are not wanting um, raw bitumen to be shipped through pipelines to a coast where if it's spilled, we'll destroy hundreds of other jobs in fishing industries, in, in uh, tourism, in, in, you know, just, just the coastal waters there. And so, so we can, you know, and again, you know, here, here's the big debate here, Mike. So then what do we do? Do we put it all on rail cars and send it down to Quebec? I mean, I mean, well, it's, no more, it's no more dangerous to send it that way than to have it going through everybody's town and village on the back of a rail car. Anyway, uh, we're out of time, Mike. We'll continue this discussion. Good luck to you. Congratulations. Uh, joining us has been Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party and incumbent MPP for Guelph. Congratulations, Mike. Thanks, Scott. Have a nice day. Bye you too. Now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.